Good morning. Welcome to episode 35 of The Plan. This is the second to last episode. We're going to finish Acts today, and then next week we're going to do Revelation, and we're going to be done. And uh, so I'm really excited about this week. I have a reason to be excited every week, but this week it's because uh, this story is going to end with a dot, 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 and lead into the part that we play in the story. And then next week, we're going to pick up and find out what the Bible says about how the whole, what we can expect during that time and how this whole story will end. But this, is, this sermon is going to lead us into the stage, the part we play in the plan. But before we get there, I try to always do a recap. And as we go farther into the series, the recap gets longer, and I have to recap more and more. But in a way, the recap can be the most important part of the sermon, because part of what I want to do with this series is to t- train you, to help you to remember the story. And every time you listen to me recap, we're learning how to tell the story of the Bible. So here's the overall theme of the Bible. It is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. Okay, so uh, God made the world, he put people in it, and he gave them the mission of ruling over the earth on his behalf, and then he came down to live with them. And that's what God wants for the world. And I thought I'd spice things up a little bit this week as I recap the story. I'm going to give you, a, not an analogy, I can't think of it. What's the Pilgrim's Progress? What kind of story is that? Allegory. This is basically an allegory, okay, and it involves my kids because Ever, even before we had kids, I told the story this way. I talked about this moment I was looking forward to when I, would get, when I would take my Lego collection and give them to my children and tell them, these are my Legos, and now you can play with them. Now, Casey and I actually made the best purchase of our parenting careers, which was a Lego table. And here are James and Charlie playing at the Lego table. Um, just, just, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but let me focus in on this face. She is so focused on figuring out how those Legos work, just, just intent on figuring out how that works. Um, but James and Charlie love to play at the Lego table, and this is kind of my vision. This is what I think it means. Like, as I enjoy them playing at the table, I think this is God's design for his relationship with us. He made the world, he made the Lego table, and he gave us Legos, and he says, let's play. Let's play together and build things and enjoy each other and just play with this world that I made and, and, and build it and develop it. The problem is, in the Bible story and in my home, is that the kids don't always play well together. They don't follow the rules. You know, they start to get selfish with, they're my Legos, actually. James likes to call them his Legos, but they're actually still mine. And so James will take Legos from Charlie And then Charlie will go on a rampage and just destroy things on the table, and they don't play well together. And that's what human beings do. We don't follow God's instructions. We don't play well with each other. We take things from each other. We destroy things. We make a general mess of the Lego table. So God initiated this plan to restore his design to the table by choosing one kid, the nation of Israel, and giving them one corner of the Lego table, and, saying, and giving them instructions for how he wants them to build on the table. Not, a, not like a blueprint that they have to, but just general, the principles of how you build. You know? And then God came down to that corner of the Lego table and started building with Israel. So that the rest of the table, all the other kids at the table, could look at the awesome things that were happening in Israel's corner of the table and understand that that's what they should be doing and that's what God wants for the children at his Lego table. 
The problem is that the kid God picked for that corner, for that project, wasn't any better behaved than the rest of them. And so that Israel kid started, started disobeying God's rules, started taking things from other kids and going on rampages and destroying things. And in the end, his corner of the table didn't look any different from the rest of the table. And so, you ready for this? God sent him into timeout. That's the exile, right? God has to show the other kids, this, is, this was not what I intended. This is not what I want. And so he goes into exile. But then God allows him to come back from time out. But in exile, Israel decided, they figured out what the problem was that had got them sent into exile. It was all those other kids at the table. It was the Gentiles that were the problem. We got too mixed up with the Gentiles. So they came back to the table and they started covering it up and building meticulously. They become obsessed with the rules and the straight lines and the color organization, but, and they wouldn't let anybody see what they were doing and they tried to keep all the kids away, right? The Gentiles can't be a part of what we're doing. We don't want them to see it. We don't, we're going to jealously guard our corner of the table and keep it away from everybody else, which is a problem because the whole point of God giving them that corner was so the rest of the kids could see what was happening there and understand that this is how God wants us to play at the table. So God sent Jesus. And Jesus called Israel to, to rejoin God's plan. He said, God is ready to restore you. The kingdom of God is coming. But you have to learn how to play right. You can't be doing this hoarding the corner for yourself and keeping everybody away. You're supposed to be a light to the nations. You're supposed to be loving others. You're supposed to be playing well with the others and helping them to see what this is supposed to look like. So he called them to make a choice. He came to Jerusalem, he stood in the temple, and he called Israel to make a choice, and they rejected him. And they rejected his way of playing Legos. And and he was killed. But then at Easter, we celebrated the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. And what that proves, first of all, is that Jesus is right about how you're supposed to play with the Lego table. It proves that he really is the Messiah and the leader of God's people. And it proves that somehow through what he did, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, God has dealt with all of the ways we messed up the Lego table in the past and has given us a way to be restored and be able to play Legos again. Then two weeks ago, we looked at the founding of the church. As Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit descends on the church, and they are marked out as the true people of God, these Jewish followers of Jesus. And they start building the church in their corner of the Lego table, and they do a great job. It is this amazing community of people who love each other and share and play well together, and all of Jerusalem can see that this is what it's supposed to look like. But The people who control Jerusalem don't like the fact that it wasn't their idea. And so they decide to come in and start smashing the church's Legos and send them into persecution. So the church goes out, but then an amazing thing happens as they go into other parts of the table. Last week we talked about how God started calling other kids at the Lego table and making them part of this project too. So you didn't have to be in, you didn't have to be the Israelite kid. You didn't have to be in the Israelite corner. Any kid at the table can start following the example that Jesus set and people all over the Lego table are starting to build in the Jesus way and build these Jesus communities. And that's where we are today in this story. Hopefully that's helpful to you. If not, just wait next week. I'll have to recap the thing all over again. But that's the story that we've been telling. And today, we're going to finish the story of Acts by focusing on the ministry of a man named Paul, who we have not really talked about much, which is kind of surprising considering how important he is to the book of Acts. So as we start his story, I want you to remember how we keep our bearings, keeping in mind uh, who is the story about, where is their home, 
How can they meet with God, and what did God tell them to do? Because, and this will be especially important because with one slight alteration, because Paul isn't alive anymore, these are our coordinates too. At this point in the story, we have caught up to our coordinates. So we're going to tell the story of how Paul became a Christian, but for time's sake, I'm going to read from later in Acts when Paul summarizes the story a bit more succinctly. So here's how Paul tells the story. I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, as I was on the road, I saw a light from the heaven, a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell on the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. All right, so who is the story about today? It's about Paul and the church. So the church, they are God's people. They are the ones that God is moving the story forward through. But today we're focusing specifically on Paul who has been called by God to be a leader within the church. Which is surprising considering that Paul was kind of the point of the spear in that persecution that we talked about after Pentecost. He was really passionate about persecuting the church, but God has chosen him to be a leader in the church. And where is their home? For months and months and months now, the answer to this question has been some way of referring to the land of Israel. We started out calling it the promised land, then we called it the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the province across the sea, Galilee and Judea. But the story has changed. Where is the homeland of God's people? Could be anywhere, because God's people can be from anywhere, right? So the world really is the scope of God's plan now. Their homeland is the whole world. Now, this part of the story is going to focus on the Roman Empire. But at this point, they're going out into all the nations, and, and the, the point of the plan is to restore the entire planet, not just the land of Israel. Because that's always been the trajectory. That's always been the point for, since when God called Abraham and said, you'll be a blessing to many nations. Now, how can they meet with God? In the church. In Christians, the Holy Spirit is actually inhabiting Christians. And so as you become a Christian, then the Spirit of God inhabits you. And, and you can, uh, and you know, this room is full of God's presence, not because it's a special temple, but because it's full of God's people, right? So we have access to God's presence simply by being Christians, and God's presence can be carried wherever God's people go. Now, what did God tell them to do? We're going to first answer, what did God tell Paul to do here? God called Paul to be a witness to the Gentiles. There are many other places in the New Testament where Paul specifically says, Jesus called me to be a witness to the Gentiles, which is amazing because Paul started out as one of the most passionate leaders of the whole 
guard my part of the Lego table, nobody else gets to look at it, keep everybody away thing. And now God has called him to be, later on he's going to be accused of being the ringleader of this movement to bring it to everybody all across the Lego table. But Paul's ministry as a, as a witness to the Gentiles is part of the calling of the church, which if you remember from Acts 1, it says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And at this point in the story, we are, we are looking at how it extends beyond Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. So the mission of the church is to witness to the ends of the earth. Paul's specific commission is to witness to the Gentiles. That's actually why his name changes. He doesn't actually change his name. He just starts going by a different name. You'll notice he's, his original name is Saul because that's his Hebrew name. But every Jew in these times had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. And so as he becomes more focused on ministering to the Greeks, he goes by his Greek name more often, and that's Paul. That's why we call him Paul. So he's been given this mission to carry the word to the Gentiles, and what happens? As we start the story, Paul gets commissioned by the church in Antioch as a missionary, and he starts traveling around Greece, and we would call it Turkey, they called it Asia, traveling around to these different cities, and the first thing he will do is he'll go in and he'll start preaching the gospel to the Jews, because the Jews already know the story. They know the recap of the story, so he doesn't have to start from square one, right? So he preaches to them, and some of them become Christians, but ultimately, in each city where he goes, eventually he gets kicked out of the synagogue. They won't let him come in and preach in their churches, because they don't agree with what he's saying. And so at that point, Paul makes a very important move in each of these cities. This is how he says it, um, this is how he says it in Acts 13. This is what the Lord commanded us. He's preaching to them uh, in, in front of the synagogue. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed to, for eternal life believed. So Paul comes into town as the traveling Jewish preacher, and he preaches to them about this Messiah, the Jews about this Messiah, and they, some of them accept it, most of them don't. And then he does something that no Jewish preacher has ever done in the past. He says, fine, you won't listen. I'll go preach to the Gentiles, because that's the point. We're supposed to be preaching to everybody. And then he preaches to them, and Gentiles start becoming Christians. In huge numbers all across Asia and Greece, here's a map. You can see the journeys. He went on three missionary journeys that we know of. And you can see all these dozens of cities that he goes to uh, in all these areas spreading the gospel. And Gentiles become Christians all over, which is completely unheard of in the history of Judaism. This idea of, of Gentiles following the God of Israel on these kind of numbers is completely unprecedented. So Paul shared the gospel with the Gentiles in Asia and Greece, and many of them began following Jesus. Now, what I want to focus, we're covering a lot of Acts, and I'm going to focus on what I see as the core thing driving the plot. And it's not so much, there's a lot of positive stories about people responding to the gospel and becoming Christians, a lot of really cool stories that you should go home and read. But the unique thing that's happening here is Paul is preaching in Gentile cities to people who don't know the story, and we're getting different reactions. We get, what we get to see as Christians is we get to see how people who had never heard of the gospel before reacted to it when they heard it. Some of them accept it, a lot of them do not, and we get to see why. So let's start with an encounter in Philippi. Once when we were going to a, the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit for which by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money from her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. 
And this part is actually kind of funny. So she's, she's, she's a, she can tell that they're preaching the gospel. She goes around announcing this, which you think would be great press. But actually, it annoys Paul. Paul's getting frustrated and annoyed, and it's actually out of frustration that he finally snaps and turns around and drives the demon out of her. Which is, that is not what happens when I snap. You know, like, <laughs> I have never done something that good when I reacted out of frustration and anger. So... <laughs> But that's what he did. So he drives out the demon out of frustration, okay? Which is good news for her, not good news for her owners. Because when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, as we look at why they are attacking Paul and opposing Paul, there's actually two reasons going on. There is the stated reason and the real reason. What type of reason are they stating in this passage? When they come before the magistrate, they are making a political objection to what he's saying, right? What he's saying is illegal. It goes against our practices. It goes against our laws. It goes against what it means to be Roman, okay? That's what they're saying, we're going to dig a bit deeper into that in a second, but that's not actually the reason why they're mad at him, right? These are not, they're not just super passionate about Roman identity or anything. The reason why they're objecting is economic. Because they were making money off of this poor woman's uh, demonic possession. And when Paul broke the power of darkness in her life, he removed a way that they could make money off of her. See, we, we have this... Um, We've been taught to believe in many ways. It's part of our political culture and part of our American background and a lot of things we don't get into, that faith is a private thing that doesn't really have consequences out of, you know, it's between you and Jesus about going to heaven. doesn't really affect anybody else. Um, but the truth is that the gospel that Paul preached had profound effects on the, on, uh, the way people lived and treated each other. And, and there's actually a lot of money that's made on things that the gospel opposes. Right? There's a lot of money in the world made. Uh, you know, people spend their money in a lot of ways that are contrary to the gospel. And a lot of things that happen pe to people that are contrary to the gospel, a lot of ways people are oppressed, are money makers. And as, G as Paul preaches the gospel and transforms people's lives, the way they spend their money is changed. And the way people can make money on them is limited and changed. So what we see is Paul, one of the things that provokes people to be angry at Paul is the fact that his message threatens their bottom line. Uh, another, he's going to run into another situation where uh, the, uh, he is, the people who sell idols are not fans of Paul. As Paul teaches people that those gods aren't really gods, they lose a lot of money. And they, they're worried about the tourism business because of their favorite god um, in that town. So the economic issues actually get a lot of opposition to Paul's message. But the political thing isn't just lip service, because later on in, in Thessalonica, the, his, Paul gets in trouble, and the accusation they make is, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And this reaction 
it, it, it's one of those places where if you don't speak Greek or you don't know ancient culture, you can actually see evidence of something that if you were in that culture, you would recognize, which is that the way the disciples, the apostles preached about Jesus used a lot of political terminology. The phrases that they used to describe Jesus' authority on earth were the same phrases that Caesar used to describe his authority on earth. And the way they described what Jesus was doing in the world was the same way Caesar described what he was doing in the world. Caesar also claimed to be a prince of peace. Caesar also claimed to be uniting the world, but he was uniting it through Roman armies at the tip of a sword, according to the Roman agenda. But that was a big message. Like Jesus is Lord in the Roman culture would contradict with the claim that Caesar is Lord. Because to say Caesar is Lord is to say when it comes down to it, um, you will do what Caesar says. And when Christians start saying, actually, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is Messiah, it introduces this different loyalty that threatens their loyalty to Caesar because if Jesus says one thing and Caesar says another thing, these Christians are going to start doing what Jesus says. So in the first, in, in the first century, as, Jesus, as Paul is preaching this message, he is preaching a message that transforms people's loyalties. It transforms their priorities. It has a political implication so many Jews and Gentiles opposed Paul's message because it had real political and economic consequences. And Paul doesn't deny these things. The gospel was not just about an individual person making a transaction with God so they can go to the good place when they die and, and have nothing to do with the way they live in this place. The interesting thing, though, is that whenever they brought the, the, as much... As powerful as the message of the gospel was, Paul's opponents had a really hard time getting him convicted. When he goes to trial, the magistrates keep letting him off. Sometimes they'll, they'll give him a beating first, but they eventually let him go. And it's, oh, it's consistently for the same reason. I'll give you an example in Acts 18. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Gallio looks at Jesus, and, or looks at Paul, and the words that Paul is saying, and he doesn't see a threat. Why? Because Gallio is short-sighted. Gallio, what he focuses on is the fact that Paul's not preaching rebellion. Paul's not preaching anything that's a crime. He's not committing misdemeanors or serious crimes. He's just talking about names, like who's Lord. But he's not, he's not teaching slaves to rebel. If he had been telling slaves to rebel, they would have tortured him to death. They were terrified of slave rebellions. If he had been teaching people to rebel against Rome, they would have killed him as spectacularly as they could have. But what Paul was saying, they didn't see as a threat to the Roman Empire. Now, later they would. In fact, Paul will eventually be killed by the Romans. And a lot of the, the apostles will be. And later on, there will be widespread persecution against the church because as the church becomes bigger and, and has more of an impact on society, they realize that, that the message of Christ will transform their societies in ways that will undermine their power, that will undermine the way they victimize others, that will transform the Roman Empire into being a different kind of empire, a different kind of community. 
So they recognize the threat later. They recognize the threat of this approach where Paul will you know, just talk to people on the street and, trans- and transform the hearts of people on the street. But because he's not trying to overthrow leaders, because he's not trying to lead a rebellion, they don't recognize him as a threat. Because that's how nations fight each other. But Paul's doing something else. So they couldn't convict Paul because he stayed true to his mission. Just like Jesus. This is why Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus, because Jesus hadn't done anything that Rome saw as a threat. Because Jesus was focusing on transforming hearts, not overthrowing rulers. And Paul remained true to that message. That's why they couldn't convict him. Because what he was doing, actually, this was the downfall of the Roman Empire. They didn't care what slaves thought. They didn't care what women thought. They didn't care what powerless people thought. And then within 150 years or so, all those people are Christians, and their culture is being transformed right underneath their feet. So Paul didn't get convicted because he stayed true to that mission. Now, Paul's storyline is very similar in structure to Jesus's because Paul spends years doing these missionary journeys in this this ministry, and then at a certain point, the story changes because um, Paul starts heading to, decides it's time to go to Jerusalem. He's got a plan in mind. He says, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So he wants to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. But this isn't just any trip to Jerusalem. First of all, the reason why he's going to Jerusalem is to carry an offering that he's been gathering from the Gentile cities for the poor in Jerusalem, which is a pretty significant signal of the unity of the church between Jews and Gentiles that they're doing this project. And it shows that Paul is not leading the Gentiles to abandon the Jews and create some different movement. But the other thing is that at this point, because Paul's been to Jerusalem several times since he's been a Christian, but this time the Holy Spirit is telling him that it's going to be different. He says, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So the Holy Spirit told Paul to go to Jerusalem with the goal of preaching the gospel in Rome. Why would preaching in Rome matter? Well, what's the mission of the church? To preach to the gospel to all the ends of the earth. Uh, We have a saying that now is a metaphor, but back then it was true. All roads lead to Rome. Also, that by extension, all leads lead from Rome. Rome was the center of the empire, and all the roads did lead there, and all the traffic went through there, and so it was the nerve center of the empire. If you wanted to plant the gospel in the most powerful place to spread it, Rome is that. So Paul is intent on going to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Well, as he gets to Jerusalem, the reason why there's a danger there is because there are all kinds of rumors going around the Mediterranean about this Paul fellow who keeps causing so much trouble. And the rumor is that he's telling Jews to stop following the Jewish law, to stop worshiping God in the Jewish way. And that would be a threat. That is the worst thing you could possibly say as a Jew if you want to be a threat to the powers that be. So when he gets to Jerusalem, everybody's primed for him, and they're all ready to hate him. So the, Jewish, the, the church leaders say, hey, why don't you, what they're saying about you isn't true. So why don't you go to the temple, participate in this sacrifice with a couple of our, our brothers, and that will show people that you're not trying to stop Jews from, celebra- from worshiping God the Jewish way. And Paul goes along with this plan because it's true that he's not trying to stop Jews from worshiping in the Jewish way. He's trying to unite Jews and Gentiles, and he just doesn't want to require Gentiles 
to worship in the Jewish way. So he goes to the temple, and it starts a riot. And they try and kill him. The Romans stop the riot, but they arrest Paul. And Paul ends up uh, going through trial after trial, and he's caught up in the legal system for years. He's imprisoned, and he has to wait. I mean, if you think our legal system can be slow, the Roman Empire's total just puts us to shame. Um, so he's there for years and years. And finally, after years and years in this process, he ends up going to, going to trial in front of the Roman governor. And so the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem come up to where the Roman governor is, and they make their accusation. They say, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader for the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. So notice, they're saying the same thing about Paul that they said about Jesus and about Stephen. That the message that he's preaching undermines the power of the temple. Right? If he teaches people they don't need the law and they don't need the temple, then their power base is lost. And so it's the same, same issue coming back to the, the temple. And so Paul answered, I have not done anything wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. So he says, look, I've done this with integrity. I haven't actually done anything that's illegal. I haven't actually made any threats. I've stayed true to the message. And I'm, I wouldn't try and get out of dying if I deserved it. He says, but if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, then no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now this is a little nuance in Roman law, actually a very big one, that if you are a Roman citizen, which Paul is, at any point you can appeal to the Supreme Court, directly to the Supreme Court, which is Caesar. Uh, and so that's what he does. It's ironic that later we find out that they were about to let him off, but Paul appealed to Caesar because he was tired of going around the circles and he knew he was supposed to get in Rome. Here's a way to get to Rome, in chains, but get to Rome. So their Jewish leaders put Paul on trial for treason against the law and temple, but Paul appealed to Caesar. Now, after Festus, the governor, had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So he gets sent to Caesar. And it is criminal of me not to tell you the story of how he gets there. There's a storm, there's a shipwreck, there's a snake bite that he miraculously survives. There's all kinds of great things that happen, and I'm not going to tell you about them, so you're going to have to go home and read about them. Because the important point for us is that God protects him and gets him to Rome. He gets him through the storm, he gets him through the shipwreck, he saves him from the snake bite, and he gets to Rome. So in chapter 28, it says, when he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. It's actually a little odd. The story of the Bible, with the exception of the the epilogue in Revelation, it ends there. We don't find out what happened to Paul's trial. We don't find out how his life ends. In fact, there's debate among scholars about whether he's executed during this imprisonment or whether he's let off, does some more journeying, and then gets arrested and executed later. It's only through church tradition that we know he was executed. Um, And that just stops. The story seems to stop. Why does it stop there? Well, it stops there because the story isn't actually about Paul. The story is about the mission. The story is about the spread of the gospel. And the mission they were given is to carry it to the ends of the earth. And so the story ends with Paul in Rome, 
sharing the gospel with people who are coming through Rome. He is in the nerve center of the Roman Empire spreading the gospel. And in terms of the, the, what happened in the first generation of the church, that is incredible. And that shows you the trajectory. I mean, can you think of it? This, this, ex, this Jewish criminal from a podunk county of the Eastern Roman Empire now has followers all over the Roman Empire and, and a church growing in Rome. That's crazy. And that's, that's the trajectory that the church is on, and that's the dot, dot, dot. Because at this point, Paul is handing the baton. And that mission that Paul is serving continues as you and I pick up that baton. Now, it's been handled by quite a few people in between, but it's the same baton, and it's the same mission that we carry. So, so the end of Acts is a launch ramp, and we're in that, that arc. We are in that trajectory that, that the apostles set us on. And so it's this, it ends in this exciting way. You're supposed to see all the potential of what's going to happen when Paul's there, but it doesn't end with just what Paul accomplishes because Paul appoints ministers and, he, and the Christians that Paul uh, brings the gospel to, they go out and spread the gospel and things grow and change and the whole world is transformed over the next 2,000 years and will be, continue to be transformed until Jesus comes back. So Acts ends with this dot, 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 so that you and I can pick up that story because we have the same coordinates. You know that you have coordinates. You can do that thing that I've been teaching you for your own life. You, are you one of the people of God? Because if you are, if you're not, then you should be. We'll talk about that later. But if you are, then you have a place where God has put you. And in that place... Wherever that is, you have access to the presence of God and you bring the presence of God there as you are a follower of Jesus. And finally, you have a purpose. Wherever you are, whatever God's put in front of you, your purpose is to build God's kingdom, to share the gospel, to do the good works he's called for you to do. You have that purpose and you are carrying on the story of Paul. And we get to see some of the potential that Paul's ministry has in uh, there's actually a couple of clues in the letter to the, uh, to the Philippians. The church in Philippi sends money to support Paul in prison. And in the, when he writes a letter to them, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has been clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So Paul is in Rome and the, he's appealing to Caesar, which means that it's Caesar's guards that watch over him. And the guards, the soldiers, the personal soldiers of Caesar are hearing the gospel. Later in the book, he says, All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now, that almost certainly does not mean members of Caesar's biological family. We would have heard about that. What it means, household means like the whole, the household staff, the people who work in his administration, the people who, like, mainly it refers to servants and slaves. So Paul is in Rome preaching the gospel and building a church right under Caesar's nose. He hasn't, he's not going for Caesar, although I'm sure if he got to try before Caesar, he did his best to make Caesar a Christian, to share the good news with him. But what he actually, where he actually saw success is the slaves and the soldiers and the, the people that he interacted with on a daily basis. The most powerful thing Paul did in his ministry in Rome was not what he said to Caesar, but what he said to his guards on a daily basis. The people who visited him. You know, the way he responded to his imprisonment. The, what he showed people about the character of God. 
And so the story of Paul in, in the Bible ends uh, with God bringing Paul safely to Rome so that he could proclaim the gospel in the center of the Roman Empire. That's the exciting thing that you see. In the palace of Caesar himself, right under his nose, the church is growing, even there. And so as we reach the end of the story of the church, as it's told in Scripture, we see that dot, dot, dot. We're reminded, first of all, that the mission to share the gospel to the ends of the earth continues with us. You can be one of the people of God. And if you are one of the people of God, then God has put you in a place. He is living in that place with you, and he has a purpose for you in that place. I did chapel work. I, I did the, chap, the chapel at Turner Retirement Homes this week, and I, I just basically talked about some of the stuff from the sermon because it's what was on my mind. And, and realizing that for Paul, the most important thing that he did was not what he said to Caesar, but what he said to his guards and the servants and the slaves that brought him lunch. What that reminds me of is that every single person in the church, every single person that God has called has a role to play in the kingdom. Because you may never get to speak to presidents or governors or kings or, or people of power, but you will interact with the modern-day equivalent of the waitstaff and the police and the grocers. And you know the, the modern equivalent of the people that Paul built a church through, we interact with them every day. You interact with them every day. And maybe you need to share the gospel with them, or maybe you just need to live in their presence in a Christ-like way. You know, the reputation that Paul had with the soldiers was in the way he endured his imprisonment in a Christ-like way. Every one of us has a role to play. It's not a matter of how important the people you're interacting with are, but the fact that you are sharing the character of God with them. That is the mission that God has for us. And it's important for us to remember that the gospel will always provoke strong reactions because it transforms the way we live together in this world. I say always, what I should say is when it's done, when it's preached faithfully. Because unfortunately, unfortunately, what we've done in our culture a lot is we've domesticated the gospel. We've domesticated it so it won't, it won't threaten people's business interests. It won't upset power structures. I mean, there's, a, there's an anxiety that goes around about we're going to be, in, you know, the church may endure persecution here in America. And this is going to sound a little harsh, but it's, it's kind of the best way I can think to say it. I'm not too worried about that. Because I don't see the church doing a lot that's worth persecuting. I shouldn't say that. I do see the church doing a lot that is incredibly powerful. But when we domesticate the gospel, that's the whole point is it's not something that's worth persecuting because it doesn't transform people. It doesn't threaten the sinful structures in our world. But as we are faithful to the gospel, we will provoke those kinds of reactions as people are considering following paths that will genuinely transform them. And as we face that possibility of that kind of reaction, we have a choice. We can do a couple of different things. One is we can domesticate the gospel so it won't offend anybody or upset anything. The other is we can, we can militarize the gospel and turn it into a, a, a club that we use to fight for the reins of power. But the way to be faithful to the gospel is to stay true to the, to the message of Jesus and the vision of Jesus, which transforms the world through transformed hearts. And as long as we stay faithful to the message of Jesus, God will use us to carry his message into all the world. 
You stay faithful to the message of Jesus. You stay faithful to the vision of Jesus. Wherever he's put you, he will use you to carry his message. What that looks like, I can't tell you. It might, you know, for Paul, it took him into some pretty hard places with some pretty incredible results. I'm not saying that if you are faithful to the gospel that everything is going to be easy. In fact, the Bible often says quite the opposite. But it will be important. It will matter. God will use what you do for the most important cause there is, which is building his kingdom. That's what the story of the Bible invites us into. Amen? As we... As we... As we close, I want to ask you to consider what decision God is putting in front of you. If you are not part of the people of God, if you are not part of his plan, today is the best day to do that, to commit to Jesus and to become part of that, that mission, that vision. There is no better day to do that than today. And if you're here, we'd love for you to come forward during the final song, or you can grab one of the ministers after church. If you're watching online, talk to a Christian that you know or trust, know and trust. Contact the church if you, if you want to talk with us. We'd love to walk you through that. But become part of this mission. It is the most important thing you can possibly do with your life. Maybe you're looking... Uh, Know that you are not called to do this alone. No one is called to follow Jesus alone. And that is why we have small groups that you can join, and you can mark this on your Connect card. You can be part of a smaller community of people who share their lives together, pray for each other, know each other's concerns, and and meet regularly to, to build those bonds. We'd love to plug you in with one of those groups. You could also join a service team that gets you into the practical business of building the kingdom by serving people in our church, serving people in our community. We have a lot of ways that you can do that. And this church is meant to be a family, that is working together to transform our community along with the other churches in our community. We want to transform this place. We're doing our best to follow Jesus, to be transformed, and to bring that into our community. If you want to be a part of that, we would encourage you to consider, beco- consider becoming a member of the church. And you, the first step for that would be to sign up for a Connect class, which we'll schedule after church on a Sunday. We'll get together and we'll talk about who the church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. There are about a million other things God could be calling you to decide to do today, and I'd ask you to keep your heart open to whatever he puts in front of you as we stand and sing our final song. Please join us.